Hello, and welcome and thank you to everyone who's able to join us today. I'm Peter Erickson, a partner at Robeson Gray, and I'm delighted to welcome you to an overview of a new report on LGBT plus self-identification that Robeson Gray has developed in a close working partnership with OutLeadership. I'm joined by Todd Sears, the CEO and founder of OutLeadership. Todd and I are genuinely excited to share the results of this study with you, and I think you'll feel the same way when you have heard them. The first of its kind, this report is the result of many months of research into the experiences of leading companies that have implemented LGBT plus self-identification for sexual orientation and gender, gender identity. It covers best practices for rolling it out, obstacles to implementation and some of the ways to get past them, and the benefits to your business of collecting these data. Before we go any further, a word of thanks is in order. The research is based on a survey that was filled out by 38 of OutLeadership's member companies. The report compiles their input and feedback, so OutLeadership and Ropes and Gray are deeply, deeply grateful to those companies and their professionals who pioneered the self-ID process and provided us with insight into their journeys to LGBT plus self-ID. This presentation will give you only a high-level overview of some of the findings. In the next 20 or 30 minutes, we'll explain what LGD, LGBT plus self-ID is, talk about the benefits that organizations can derive from making self-ID available to their employees and colleagues, outline the key milestones and the challenges that an organization might face in implementation with a special focus on legal and regulatory issues and how to address them. And finally, we'll highlight some of the best practices for implementing LGBT plus self-ID. Now let me turn it over to Todd, who will give you a little more of an introduction and then present the details of the report. I'll say I will be heckling him with the occasional question, but I hope we'll also be able to take questions as we go along from those who are listening. Thank you, Peter. I will say the driving force in terms of my perception and the reason I wanted us to do this research was that over the past however many years as I travel the world and I meet with leaders from our companies, I'm always struck by the massive amount of misinformation that there is around self-identification, why it matters, where you can get, where you can ask, how you ask, what the inputs need to be, what the outputs need to be, and what the impact of self-ID is on both the leaders who identify and the companies in which they identify. And so it was really exciting when Ropes decided that they would support this project because it was something I really wanted us to do for a while so that we could increase the number of companies that are using self-identification as a platform for their employees. Uh, so with that, let's just dive in. And what we'll do is, uh, as Peter mentioned, we will um, we'll go through some of the slides and I think he has some hopefully very hard and heckling questions to, to ask me. I'm not sure, uh, you know, we'll see. We'll see, he is a lawyer after all and, and I'm not, so. Um, <laughs> So let's start with the basics. What is LGBT plus self ID? Um, for some companies starting back in when I was at Merrill Lynch, for example, we were able to add self-identification to our employee um, HRIS system back in 2005. Uh, and there were companies that were doing it even before Merrill. Um, so it has been around for a while, um, but as it has evolved, uh, as we have here, you know, it is one often misunderstood and underutilized. Some people do think, and it can be a complex process, um, I do believe that it is one of the key steps in the employee engagement process, um, but it is important that it is viewed as a multifaceted both approach, but also output. There are lots of reasons that companies want to do self-identification, and there are lots of, in my opinion, benefits to doing it, 
as well as the challenges, we've really tried to sort of balance the challenges that do exist, really focusing on the ultimate goal of why it does matter. I was curious as I read the report, um, in terms of the challenges, um, is it possible to generalize? Are the, are the logistical and operational and legal challenges greater or are the cultural challenges within organizations greater or does it vary as you might expect? I think it's both, but I would say on the organizational and the structural challenges, it depends on the country in which they're operating, right? So if a company wants to do self-identification in one of the 36 countries that we've identified that companies are now doing it, depending on the company, whether it's in Europe with GDPR or across Asia, depending on privacy laws or here in the United States, depending on what the sort of local law looks like, how you ask the question matters and being able to operationalize that across a globe. Citibank, for example, 82% of Citibank's employees can self-identify in their anonymous employee engagement survey globally. That took a huge amount of risk work on the front end that Citibank was willing to put in. On the cultural side, it's important that, that leaders understand one, why it matters, uh, including that it's not just going into some HR database someplace, but the company actually cares about career pathing for LGBT people or being able to send the message that LGBT people are part of a diversity strategy, not just an add-on. Uh, and that cultural sort of education and the reason for self-ID is a really key challenge that companies have to start with. Did I do okay on that? So far, so okay. good. Okay, all right, good. Uh, so the, uh, the business benefits. So as we mentioned, um, there are numerous benefits of self-identification and I'm not gonna go through each of these bullets, but I think if you look at them from a business perspective, each of these has a direct ROI to the bottom line. Whether you're looking at your corporate culture, whether you're looking at your stakeholders, how your company's perceived, all the way through to retention, communication. And the thing that I wanna highlight about this from a business benefit is that we're not just talking about the impact to LGBT plus employees. Your ally employees and people across the diversity spectrum in your organization see this as a positive step of the organization. They see this as a message that the organization is sending both to its stakeholders, its LGBT plus employees and its customers and clients. And I like to say when we chat about the ally marketplace, if we estimate that the LGBT marketplace is $5.4 trillion, I estimate the ally marketplace is eight to 10 times that. The 8% of self-described allies will change a brand based off of a company's LGBT policies, procedures, and what they do in the marketplace. This very squarely fits into that bucket. And how, uh, two-part question. One is, do companies and organizations experience those benefits right away, or is it a, a more gradual process? And how do they, what, what are some of the ways that they get the word out uh, uh, that they are uh, uh, LGBT friendly, and in particular on self-identification issues? It's gradual. I will say that there are immediate benefits just in the sense of being able to immediately talk about it and make sure that the stakeholders in the organization, whether it's the CEO, the executive sponsor, all the way through to the ERG chairs, know and can speak about this as a broader platform for what the company is doing. So in terms of the visibility, that's a, that is actually relatively immediate. In terms of the benefits longer term, every company that does this has to estimate that the reporting itself will be massively underreported for the first year to three years that they're doing it simply because you have to build up trust in the organization. You might have to get that culture shift that makes the employees feel that they actually can self-identify and then see the positive impact of self-identification, right? You have to give people the reason to do it. So for example, one of the companies shared that they like to track talent based off of this and or give talent the opportunity to apply for a leadership program like Out Leadership's Out Next. And if you self-identify, we know who you are so we can put you in this talent program. That's a positive impact and a positive outcome of this. So the communication piece to this entire process is vital. From the very beginning, 
all the way through to sharing the positive outcomes and the positive impacts of what the organization is actually doing really, really matter. Now you had another part of the question though. Um, how are people actually doing it uh, in terms of- How are they publicizing? How are they, how publicizing? Are they making people aware? Yeah, well, I think that that's an interesting piece. There are companies that are doing it at the recruiting level as well. So when applicants are applying to the organization at a college level, at a graduate level, even through Alpha Undergraduate Business, which is our leadership's newest partner, or reaching out MBA, which is another great partner of ours, the opportunity for companies to say at the very beginning, we wanna know if you identify as LGBT plus so that we can make sure your employee network knows about you. We can make sure that you get sponsorship. The LGBT plus employees wanna mentor you, sponsor you, et cetera. So being able to communicate it at all levels of the employee experience, I think is really important. So all the way through onboarding, even the promotion process, making sure that as people have the opportunity, they can self-identify and know that the company does it. What struck me the first time I read the report was that 38 companies doesn't sound like a lot. It doesn't sound like a broad ranging survey. So I'm, can, you, can you talk about that a little bit before we get into, into details of the, how the 38 break down? There are so few companies that are doing this and most of them are in the Fortune 250. So being able to have 38 companies is actually a, a, a decent sample size. I will also say, and I think we all agree with this, the goal is to have hundreds of companies that do this, thousands of companies. Ideally, this should be a best practice that any company, regardless of size, regardless of what their revenues are, should want to implement because it does actually make massive business sense for them and can create great impact. So the idea is that, yes, 38 is a relatively small number. In the universe of companies, it's a decent number, but most importantly, the best practices that we got from those 38 companies are applicable regardless of the size of the company. So the key challenges, and actually we're gonna talk about the milestones and the best practices. Um, what we really want to achieve here, and this is by no means, again, a definitive, but this is a compilation of the processes that our companies have been going through. The, the key and the number one best and most important piece here is that you have to have the buy-in from every level of the organization. As I was saying before, the C-suite has to obviously buy in, the ERG leaders have to buy in, and everybody in between. Um, and making sure that you're not just getting buy-in at the beginning, but getting buy-in throughout the process, you will hit roadblocks. Um, your, your friendly lawyers will throw up all kinds of interesting questions that you'll have to navigate and being able to have people in some cases that are willing to understand the risk that the compliance team may raise and still make a business decision based off of that uh, is really, really important. So obviously you've got to do it by country and the, the compliance pieces is your technology actually able to, 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 to move it forward. There are companies that actually had self-ID and then were merged into another company that did not have it or their platforms didn't match and they were able, they had to sort of re-navigate or even remove self-ID in some cases. Um, the communications piece really almost should go across everything here. This is, you know, it's, it's in one bucket, but the communication piece is vital at every step of this process, especially with how you collect and analyze the data. How do you ask the questions? How do you regionally make them specific, right? Because even languages, the different terms don't translate as easily and making sure that you're looking at it from a, a much more holistic and global perspective, not making it seem like some American thing that you're trying to export to other regions or other countries. And I, I would emphasize that the beginning and the end of this milestone and the, the journeys here. Getting the, the buy in the beginning obviously matters, but following up and sharing the positive objectives or the outcomes is huge. If people self-identify and then it just goes into some database somewhere that no one ever hears of ever again, you will have failed and people will, that you will see participation decrease. So it really does matter that you share the positive outcomes. And again, on the ally front, I would share the positive outcomes broadly because it does actually make a difference uh, in the corporate culture. 
So moving on, um, the, the key three challenges, uh, and we identify more in the full report, um, but the, the key sort of buckets are around data privacy, employee non-participation, and categories and terminology. Um, data privacy, you know, that, that very much was the number one challenge that companies came up with uh, or encountered. I will say that, and, and you, when you get the report, you'll be able to see a little bit more of this information. A lot of those concerns are, are actually unfounded in the sense of where you can ask, how you ask, et cetera. So I'm excited about being able to get better information into the marketplace so that more people will be able to actually navigate data privacy. The Ropes and Gray team specifically did a fantastic two-page spread in the report specifically focusing and targeting GDPR. And we'll talk about that here in a second, but I, I do want to call that out as a really nice guide. And I think we will continue to focus on the GDPRs of the world as they continue to, to pop up. Employee non-participation is a key challenge. That really does matter in terms of how you communicate and how you share what you're going to do with the data uh, and, and what you actually do with the data. So you will see employee non-participation decrease and participation increase the longer you do it and the more people see that you actually are trying to do something in a positive way for organizations. The, the final in categories and terminology is ultimately a major challenge. And as I like to say, and we were laughing that I have like four stories that apparently that's all I talk about, uh, is that you have to have a PhD in gay to be able to talk about LGBT plus these days. And the gays have made it a little challenging because we keep adding letters and acronyms and rearranging things and adding pluses and I's and Q's and everything else. And to your average non-LGBT plus leader, that can be confusing, challenging, and make you not necessarily know how to engage. As it relates to the self-identification process, uh, Facebook, we were just confirming Facebook, for example, you ha has 51 gender markers that you can select to describe your gender identity or expression, which is massive and from a corporate perspective, not something that's achievable. So in the report, we really did try to, to limit the number of gender and identity and expression markers as a starting point, because ultimately it's going to continue to evolve and you've got to pick a point in time to be able to say, this is where we're moving from. Love to know what guidance you would provide to companies concerned about employee privacy, especially in states where LGBTQ rights aren't protected. It's not just an issue of states, obviously, it's an issue of countries. And um, you have identified uh, countries uh, where self identification has been implemented, and yet, where, uh, as far as I, I believe, um, LGBT behavior or acts are prohibited, like Singapore, for example. How does that work? How, how, can, how can you have the one, how can you implement the one when the other is the case? Yeah, absolutely. One, I think it's a, a great opportunity. There are numerous 73 countries where it's still illegal to be gay in some way, shape, or form. And the U.S. states, of course, are still massively challenged as well and potentially getting worse. So the privacy piece is first and foremost a concern that you have to make sure that your employees feel comfortable knowing that their data is not going to be exposed. Um, to Peter's question, in terms of if you can look at this, this chart, I, I, this is one of my favorite slides, the, the, the heat map here. And if you look at both countries where self-ID is already implemented and countries where self-ID will be implemented, this is from the companies that we asked, I would encourage everyone on the call to think about if you've talked to your companies around self-ID, have you gotten the, we can't ask that question in any of these countries? If you have, share this report with them because this is literally exactly why we wanted to this report. Because to Peter's point, there is massive misperception. So Singapore is a good example where 377A is still the law, but the prime minister in 2007 said they no longer enforce it. And there are company misperceptions like the fact that you can't quote unquote acts uh, have domestic partner benefits in Singapore, which is false. You can provide domestic partner benefits for your employees in Singapore. 
and you can ask self-identification questions. All these are voluntary, by the way, and I think that's a key differentiator to underscore, and that ties into GDPR as well. The voluntary nature of these demographic questions that you ask does free you up quite a bit to ask a lot more than if they were required questions. But we do currently have companies that are asking in all of these countries you see in blue and are planning to ask in all the countries that you see under the yellow line. Okay, so the key questions for due diligence. Uh, so these are some of the questions that, that we are actually, we asked in the survey and we encourage companies to consider as you're thinking about uh, whether or not you do want to actually implement self-ID. Um, is it legal for self, LGBT plus people for self, to self-identify? Is it safe? And I would actually underscore the safe piece. Uh, the legalities, as you will see um, from this report, are a whole lot less restrictive than I think people assume. I would really underscore the difference in safety. Um, so do people have the ability to self-identify and are they, uh, are they safe to do so? You know, is, there, is there a feeling uh, that they can ask the question and that they do actually uh, want to make sure uh, that the answers are protected and the employees are safe? Um, and we can talk a little bit about GDPR. Uh, so uh, Rowan is the gentleman, the partner here at Rose and Gray, who wrote the GDPR section of this report. Um, and you know, I think some of the key interesting things uh, around the GDPR piece were in terms of the protection of the data and how that sort of stack ranks. And I know we were chatting about that. Yeah, it's actually, Rowan says it's actually uh, more protected than things like financial data or social security numbers or age, which is surprising and encouraging. And the fact that California has now adopted a, a sort of uh, its own version of the GDPR suggests that, that there's a trend. We can, we can hope so, I guess. Right. All the more reason to make sure that you're starting it out in the right framework. So, you know, if you can make a GDR compliant, ideally you can make it compliant with any of these other, whether it's California or other, other jurisdictions that are going in the same vein. Requiring employees uh, to be able to respond is obviously not a thing. Um, and importantly, how you ask the question and with GDPR, you have to provide the reasoning and how the data will be used. And so ideally, if you're doing self-ID the right way, and, and in our opinion, anyway, right, uh, that sort of framework of why you're collecting the data, how it will be used, why it matters, et cetera, actually does fit into the GDPR framework because you, you were ideally starting with that regardless of GDPR. Other thoughts on that? No, we're good. Um, I had a sort of concluding question. I'm just reading the report, listening to you talk about it. Um, I know I um, thought continually of the way in which working in an environment where you're able to be out and able to self-identify as LGBT uh, or, uh, or your uh, gender identity um, improves your life as an employee, as a worker, as a colleague, um, makes, and makes you a better, in my opinion, uh, uh, employee or colleague. I wonder whether, uh, and I'm sure everybody listening has you know, the, the same idea and can, and can think of an anecdote that uh, that demonstrates that, but I wonder from your global travels and or, and or from the research where the one story sort of sticks out in your mind. Uh, you don't have to limit yourself to one story if you don't want to. Well, I, I would say two things. One, I would agree absolutely with your statement that being out in the workplace does positively impact every piece of your employee experience. And there's data and research to show that. Uh, the Power About 2.0 that we funded and co-sponsored with Sylvia Hewlett, the Center for Talent Innovation, specifically actually documents the fact that if you were out in the workplace, you were more likely to be promoted, you were happier, you were less likely to leave your organization, your colleagues trust you more, and corporate trust and engagement is the key factor to success in climbing a hierarchical organization. 
You're able to identify and find sponsors and mentors in your organization and externally. So there are, max, there, there, there are multiple benefits to people being out and the self-identification process creates one more venue for that to happen and one more creation of a conversation in an organization. I would also say, and this is a, a little bit more on the advocacy front of what out leadership does with businesses trying to drive change from an economic perspective, self-identification gives a company the ability to make a case in a Singapore or in an India, which IBM would be a good example of as well. When IBM started their employee resource group in India, I wanna say seven years ago, fewer than 20 employees identified as LGBT to join the ERG. Five years later, when they did self-identification, almost 1,200 employees self-identified in India as LGBT. And that was still during the time that 377 was on the books. And that allowed for several things. Most importantly, IBM knew that those 1,200 employees were potentially at risk for discrimination based off of the local laws. It also allowed IBM and other companies, as part of the advocacy campaign to the Supreme Court and to the government and the Parliament of India, to be able to say that this actually is a business issue for us. These are 1,200 of our key employees who are discriminated against based off of this antiquated law that no one thinks should actually be on the books. And the same thing would be true in Singapore or any of these other countries. In Singapore, 19% of their GDP is financial services, and yet LGBT people are still criminalized on some way, shape, or form at some level, specifically around spousal benefits, for example. So if Ropes and Gray wanted to bring in your top lawyer and her wife, that would not necessarily be a possibility because the spousal visa in Singapore would not exist, even if they were legally married in the UK or the US. So the ability for companies to take this data and do things with it from an external perspective which ties directly to brand, which ties directly to clients, which ties directly to everything else that companies ideally should be doing in the marketplace for their business reasons, as well as their talent reasons, I think is huge. And I hope more companies will leverage this to do exactly that. I'm gonna to give Todd the last word. I'll just say again, on behalf of Ropes and Gray, how delighted and proud we are to have participated in uh, this uh, research. And I will echo Peter's thanks. I, I want to give Ropes and Gray one more shout out for not just this report, but it's important that our firms know the amount of support Ropes and Gray has given us with this report, but the second piece of research that we're launching this next week as well. If you're familiar with our global CEO briefs, which were for 21 countries around the world, with the idea that C-suite leaders can actually advocate, as I was mentioning, based off of economic opportunity and consequence, we created those briefs for these countries to create that opportunity and to provide a guidebook for companies. Ropes and Gray helped us with the legal pieces for those briefs, in addition to the new CEO briefs that we're launching this next week for all 50 states. We've created an LGBT business climate index that will literally score all 50 states based off of LGBT friendliness across 20 different dimensions. And Ropes and Gray and their team did the legal briefing for all 50 states for those reports as well.